Hi, my name is Frank McKenna. I'm the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And if you're not a member of DIB yet, why not? You are going to miss out on a sensational September of events. We've got events right across the country and we'll be speaking to some really influential politicians, including the Shadow Business Secretary, Johnny Reynolds, the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, and the Shadow Justice Minister, Steve Reed. We've also got the property entrepreneur Chris Oglesby doing an event for us down in Birmingham. And we've got a whole range of other speakers, chief executives of local authorities, other business leaders, other politicians coming in to share their thoughts and opinions with the Downtown Network. If you go to our events section on our website, all the W's downtowninbusiness.com, then you will see what a fantastic range of events we have coming up in September. And if that's not enough to tempt you into a membership, then wait to see what we've got coming in the remainder of the autumn. We've got awards events happening in Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool. We've got the two leaders from Liverpool and the Liverpool City region, Liam Robinson and Steve Rotherham joining us for a very special breakfast forum. We've got the Education Minister, Gillian Keegan, doing us an event at the Conservative Party conference. We've got Andy Street, the regional mayor from the West Midlands, in a breakfast event with us too. So a whole range of great people, great events, great networking. Join Downtown in Business today. As I say, visit our website and see some of the fantastic events that we've got for your pleasure happening in autumn 2023. Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Group Chairman and Chief Executive of Downtown in Business. Welcome you to Series 4, Episode 2 of the Leaders Season, the Downtown Den Podcast. I'm delighted that uh, we had a conversation with Martin Williams, who's the Chief Executive of Gaucho and M Restaurants, two of the most vibrant, dynamic, exciting hospitality brands in the country. Martin talks about his journey from a drama student into acting and then through into the hospitality sector. He's always had a love of food and drink. Uh, he's created an absolutely spectacularly good culture uh, within his business. You'll hear him talk, I think, very passionately about some of the great social value that his businesses add. Uh, and I think also, you know, there's some great tips and tricks there for business leaders who are trying to sustain uh, a good business moving forward. Sit back, enjoy this just under an hour, I think, of conversation with Martin Williams, Chief Executive of Gaucho and M Restaurants. Welcome back to the Downtown Dem podcast with me, Frank McKenna, the Group Chairman and Chief Executive of Downtown in Business. And this is our latest series where we're talking to leaders. And I'm delighted to be joined in the Den today by Martin Williams, who's the Chief Executive of Gaucho and M Restaurants. Martin, welcome to the Downtown Den. Thank you for having me. And it's great to see you here on the back of an award win last week at the City of Liverpool Business Awards for Gaucho. Yes, that's very fantastic. Um, I think the team have worked so hard over the last six months to get some recognition uh, for that hard work from peers and business leaders is really important. And um, so they're, they're flying high. The restaurant's doing incredibly well. And it's great that the city has uh, embraced our brand and offering. Yeah, it's been a flying star for you here in Liverpool, hasn't it, for, for Gaucho? And um, we'll probably 
get into, you know, why you chose the city for one of your more recent ventures later in the conversation. But I wanted to start by asking you how you got into the hospitality industry. Was that something that you started your career out as? Were you sort of always wanting to go into the visitor economy, that sort of sector? It's a long story, but it start, starts at the age of three, so I won't give you a full, a full <laughs> year blow, 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 blow. But my uh, my mum used to cook with me when I was three, and uh, my other brothers were off at school, and it was something really bonded over. So I've, I grew up with this love of food, and as uh, as a family, food was very important. The sort of the community element of it we always sat down as a family of seven and had dinner together on an, on a weekend uh, one of one of the kids would cook uh, various course and i loved it i loved cooking and i also loved the sort of theater of cooking and the uh, communion element of it so and the social elements of it um so i, I fell in love with sort of food dining and then eventually, as you get older, you everyone falls in love with wine. So <laughs> the food and drink element has always been part of my life. But I went down, I couldn't decide. I remember when I was 16, a careers advisor asked me uh, what I wanted to do. And I had a chat and he was like, what are your passions? And I was like, I ever want to be a world famous athlete, uh, a chef, hotel manager, or an actor. And somehow I ended up doing the acting. So I came to London when I was um, 18. Studied acting for three years. Whilst I was doing that, I was working in restaurants. And then I had a fairly successful career for about three years in acting, but you had no control over it. You would work for six months. You wouldn't work for six months. You would get a supporting lead role, but that didn't mean that the next time around you would get a lead. Um, you do adverts all over the world and you sort of realize quite quickly that's pulling faces for a living. So I, I didn't fall out of love with acting, but... I felt like I had no control over my career. And all the time I was doing that, I'd been working in restaurants and bars and in various positions from kitchen porter to barber to barman to waiter, everything other than a chef and, um, and, and loved it. So I was like, okay, this is my passion. So at the age of, I think it was 21 or 22, um, I was like, actually, no, it was a little bit later. I was 24. Um, I was like, no, I'm taking this seriously. And now I'm going to be, uh, take this as my career full time. And as an Englishman with a, a work ethic, half a brain, I, I'm not particularly academic, but, uh, but I have a good sense of business. And um, you were quite a rarity in hospitality. Predominantly, it was um, filled with South Africans, Australians. Being a restaurateur wasn't really perceived as being a career in the UK, and to a degree, it still isn't. Um, and or an attractive career um but i thought this is something i love and actually i could excel in and as a result got my career advanced very quickly i was kind of fast-tracked by the company i was with at the time and quickly worked my way into management so at the age of 20 late 24 i was had my first general manager position which was a company called wokok with a concession that they had in harrods um and that was really the start of my learning curve and career. Wow. So 24, uh, you've got quite a senior position in a sector that you've decided to forge your career in. So that must have been quite a, a, a fill-up for somebody whose ambition is to go forward in hospitality and, as I say, carve out a career in that sector. Yeah, I can't remember where I read it. I mean, once I, once I decided I wanted to do it, I was with a good company and I was like, I want to be fast-tracked into management. And I'd been doing like supervisorships and 
And this was a relatively small restaurant, but it was very, and somebody had said to me, um, you know, if you dress as and behave like the role you want to be, then you'll advance in your career up to that quite quickly. And people will perceive that you are that level. So I was wearing my wedding suit. My, I managed to win somehow <laughs> a tailor-made bespoke wedding suit. So I got married at about 23. So I was wearing that all the time on the floor, looking very serious and I had gravitas. I'd learned gravitas and how to hold a room through acting. Um, so I was like, yes, I'm walking and behaving and uh, presenting myself as a serious restaurateur. And anyway, they bought into it. I had a lot to learn at that time. Uh, I made lots of mistakes in Harrods, uh, but that was a great learning curve that, that year or two of my life. Yeah, great start. Now, you said uh, something interesting there. You said, you know, you, you weren't academically particularly sure. gifted, um, but you worked hard. Um, and then the other side of that coin, I would suggest, is the fact that you were clearly confident because you'd done drama, yeah. you'd done acting. Um, and I just wonder, you know, given the state that the country's in at the moment in terms of skills shortages, in terms of lots of sectors um, looking for people, where do you think that there's been a little too much emphasis placed in recent times on that academia? And yeah. Not enough, really around spotting people's talents in other areas? Yeah, I mean, there's two or three points there. I think looking back as a mature adult now, um, I think the thing that my parents gave me the most that I need to thank them for is like self-confidence, self-belief in a stable household. And so I was always getting like, it was, it was I was at school at the point where you would get marked on like leadership and things as well as just academic. Um, and self-confidence, this kind of thing, presentation, not just like the academia element. And and I always did really well in that. Um, but with that self-confidence, self-belief, you actually, I saw past academic results. I've got, as I say, I've got three brothers. Two are very academic. One speaks up to 20 languages fluently, including Arabic, Russian. I mean, it's ridiculous. But he can't tie his shoelaces. Like we did a cycle <laughs> ride recently, and he couldn't get in the bib shots and literally couldn't put on his shoes. And he's like 50 years old. I'm like, man alive. You may have a master's and a PhD and whatever, but you literally can't dress yourself. And, and the other side of the brain, where I'm creative, I'm a good leader, and, and, and I think that vocational skill is becoming more recognized um, and the value of, of all of that is being more recognized. And there you're starting to get to a point where, um, you know, it's not seen as a, an inferior. And I think a lot, a lot of recognition of neurodiversity as well. So some of the most talented leaders I know did badly at school because they were on the autistic spectrum or they were um, dyslexic. So they didn't do that well, but that made them better communicators and they actually compensated for their lack of academic, traditional academic skills uh, through being better in creativity and communication um, and therefore have turned out to be great leaders. And still today, when you look at, when I look at peers across sector, I think the best leaders are the ones who aren't necessarily the most academic. Interesting points. And we'll come back to recruitment and the challenges that you've got in hospitality a little later, perhaps. But you're 24, you're at Harrods. Um, so what happens next? 
I upset a lot of people at Harrods, but that was in two parts. So that was one, culturally, they had a very strict, it was in the days of Muhammad Al-Fayed. And, um, and I was just like, I'm going to make sure this restaurant's really successful. So they had this horrible situation where everybody had a grade, a status with a color on a card. So on their staff card, you had like green, you're really important, orange, you're semi-important. And if you're like an unworthy, unwashed, basic worker, as they would perceive it, you had a white card. So I created White Card Wednesday. So all the staff, in like there's thousands of them in the rest in the in the whole of Harrods, would come to our restaurant and get a discount. So I was taking business away from their staff canteen. So that started upsetting them. And I was tripling my takings, which was great. So my my bosses were very happy, but the bosses of Harrods were. So there was definitely a democratic move at a certain point when I'd said to the wrong person, do you mind getting out of my restaurant and leave me to do it? Um, I don't understand who you are, a Harrods director um, who's trying to tell me to do something. Um, there was a democratic decision that actually I would be promoted out of that restaurant into a bigger one <laughs> to, stop, <laughs> to stop upsetting people <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and uh, turning over the apple cart. So uh so yeah that and then and then sadly what what uh, it was sort of an independent restaurant and it got caught up in city center restaurants and the quality they they decided the quality needed to be much much to make it a profitable venture um they were going to cut quality so it was a good time for me to leave basically and then i joined um zz when it was six and worked my way so i was general manager then an operations manager uh, and an area manager so i did i think five years with them um, and took it from six to 36, which was great. And then I decided I wanted to um, learn more fine dining. So I went to a restaurant called Christopher's in Covent Garden. And Christopher was the son of James Gilmore. It's a Christopher Gilmore. And James Gilmore was the chief whip of Margaret Thatcher. And this restaurant had become this like amazing hotspot for politicians and political journalists and it was an interesting study in sort of status. I'd always loved politics. My dad was the leader of Liberal Democrats in Teesside. And so I spent, uh, I didn't love this bit, but I spent many weekends pushing leaflets through doors and uh, supporting his campaigns. Um, but um, but what I, but I grew up loving like, the political figures. And this was in the days of Tony Blair, David Blunkett. They were in all the time. Um, and then you had the Boris Johnsons of this world as well. So they were in one side of the restaurant with the likes of Amanda Patel, Andrew Marr, uh, Sarah Spears, I think it was, Sarah Smart, uh, who ended up being Sans, Sarah Sands, who was the editor of Evening Standard for a while. She had all these like political bigwigs, but they were only allowed on one side of the restaurant. And then the sort of normal MPs, were, and the, the lesser journalists were on the opposite side. Um, but it was, you know, it was a really interesting um, place to work. And I learned fine dining, white, white tablecloth dining. And there was a leader there, a guy called Eddie Coote, and he was the worst leader I ever worked with. He basically had a – he never never came in the restaurant. And he um, – so he sat in his office and he basically had a book on his on his desk and it said anger management on it. And he was one of the most angry men on earth. <laughs> and I, I could never real, I, I didn't know whether this was like ironic or whether this was a signal I'm an angry man and I need to manage. <laughs> but he, he blew up at somebody pretty much every month. And I knew one day my time would come. I sort of played the game with him, but I knew my time would come. But he was ultimately a bully. And, um, 
And I was like, I'm not going to work in that environment. So when my time does come, I'll resign. I'll let the directors know that it's because of a rotten culture in the business. And then I'll move on. And then I went to Goucho. And, um, and again, great leadership there where I had a guy called Donald Story, who's very, um, very much of a belief that he'll give you autonomy to run your restaurant as your own, as an entrepreneur. So I joined as GM of Canary Wharf and I was doing mental stuff. I'd like, this is in 2004, I had rickshaws shuttling the bankers from their banks straight to the restaurant for lunch. This was in the days of like big lunches and that some of the diners would be so drunk that they couldn't walk home. So we put them in the rickshaws, take them to the tube or take them home, put them back to the office. Um, and we had like loads of great fun activations there. And again, I like doubled the turnover in the business. So I think it was running about turnover about 2.4 and I got it to 4.2 million in the space of 18 months. So got promoted, took up, took our um, flagship site in Piccadilly, which I took from 4.7 million to 10 million and then uh, got promoted again to Ops Manager and then MD. So that was a nine-year journey. And then after that, I decided, okay, I've been with the company nine years and um, and I've done as much as I felt I could. I'd created. We we basically defined the brand. We'd taken it from Gaucho Grill to Gaucho and we'd made Gaucho have an element of lifestyle to it. So we had a Sunseeker on the Thames. We, had, we were doing a big... We, I created the highest attended international polo day in the history of the sport. And that was in the O2. So Michael Jackson had died and a, another great leader called David Campbell, who was at Formula One and then AEG who owned the O2 and since went on to the Ivy and Wagamamas. Um, he, um, so he's, you know, there's a lot that you could say like his leadership skills, but he was a great leader. And, and I went to him, I said, Michael Jackson was meant to do 30 days here. And he goes, yes, and he's dead. So why don't you do something here? And I was like, okay, I'll put a polo event in. And, uh, and we had a guy called Nacho Figueres, who's great fans. He's called the Beckham of polo. He was the captain of Argentina, and he's, he's good friends with Prince Harry. Uh, and an incredibly good-looking uh, guys, Ralph Lauren Mubble as well. And, and, a, and they were playing the official England team. We had Maseratis bringing the polo players in in this like light show, and then they jumped off their cars onto the polo players. And we did it three years. And the first year I did it, I lost £138,000. And I'm like, oh, my God, I need to resign. And I offered my resignation. And to, to his credit, my CEO at the time, a guy called Seth Goddick, he's like, don't worry. Like, we achieved so much with this as a brand. Um, like It was an investment, and you've learned a lot. And um, you know it, as an investment, it was worth it. And uh, I don't know where he put it in the PL. I mean, it must have been. <laughs> it'll, it'll have been an adjustment, I think. Um, but um, the next year, I only lost 38 grand. So I thought that was a win. <laughs> and then the third year, I broke even. But it, So we did some really good stuff. But I felt it was time for me to leave in 2014. And at that point, I discovered I, I had the encouragement, friends, family to set up my own business, which was M. Going back to Gaucho, there was a guy called Donald Story, who I'd mentioned earlier. He said to me in about 2015, sorry, 2005, you don't know enough about like the best hospitality in the world. Go to the Four Seasons and see what they're doing. Go to some like uh, Michelin restaurants. And I, this was a huge eureka moment for me. So for about eight years before I before M, I basically, thankfully, my wife loves food, wine, restaurants, travel. 
went on this global odyssey, just seeking the world's best restaurants, world's best dining experiences, amazing hospitality, going to vineyards. So I'd collected all this inspiration up from around the world. And that's what M is really, is a, an expression of global hospitality, food and drink, all in one venue, experiential dining, amplified. Um, and we created the first one in Threadneedle Street, which did very well. We then opened another restaurant in Victoria, sadly no longer there, um, a restaurant in Twickenham. And then we uh, just opened a restaurant in Canary Wharf last year. Um, and then 2018 came, and in the four years I'd left, Gaucho had created another brand called Cow, which didn't do very well, and had sort of neglected Gaucho. And as a result, uh, the company had gone into administration. So one of the big things that I'd always learned um, managing restaurants was like, just build your network. And I'd built a network of friends, regulars, um, one of them was a guy called Lawson Mancaster, who's an amazing support in my entrepreneurial years, where I learned everything when it comes to leadership, to be honest with you, of 90% of what I learned and can sit here today and talk about was through the journey from 2014 to 2018 of, of entrepreneurial leadership. And now I apply that to um, a more corporate structure, but my leadership today. But Lawson basically told me that the buyers who um, had bought Goucher out of administration didn't have anyone to run it. And I was like, great, I know how to run it. So uh, the Investec guys were regulars. We facilitated a meeting. Investec were the company who bought, bought Goucher out of administration along with another company called SC Lowy. Um, and we had lots of meetings. And then we agreed that basically, in principle, they would also buy M. And we would merge the two companies together. And at that point, late 2018, I took over Gaucho again, um, which had a lot of fixing to do. Um, so 2019 was really about fixing Gaucho and reimagining the brand and making it great value for money, incredibly relevant to many, many different demographics where historically it had just been a, a sort of 40, 50-year-old steak and chips, glass of claret type yeah. demographic. Um, which is still our core, but now the, it's much more attractive to a wider wider public. Um, and then lockdown kept. And, uh, yeah, good time to uh, get involved in that big manager <laughs> then in the hospitality sector. It was a good time not to own your own business. Uh, and my investors were incredibly supportive. And, um, and what that meant was basically we could model a number of scenarios but, and, and get comfortable with the finances whilst actually getting on the front foot and looking at what is our growth strategy, what are we doing with our people. We supported our staff incredibly well during that period when as hospitality overall didn't live to the noise that it created. So our best employers who were just like laying off their best perceived best employers who were laying off their entire workforce, uh, uh, closing the restaurants too early before furlough was announced. So a lot of our competitors really embarrassed themselves at that time. And we proved ourselves as great employers, great leaders. We took a salary sacrifice so that we could top up salaries of our people. Um, and the best part was we invested in our, our fresco spaces. And I was out looking for new restaurants, including Liverpool. Um, so that we could open on the front foot as soon as we were allowed to do so we opened as a result our staff stayed with us we had enough staff to open all the restaurants 
people tried us for the first time because our competitors didn't treat their people properly and lo and behold, they didn't have any staff left. Um, and we captured a huge amount of market share. So 2019, sorry, 20, 2022 was our best year we've ever had as a company. Um, and we really, if you needed the sort of financial benefits of having good morals and good leadership and a good company culture, um, that was a great demonstration that if you do the right thing, the sales follow. Martin, that was a whistle-stop tour mm. from the age of 24 <laughs> three right to, through three. to where we are now. So what I'm going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to unpick some of those tales that you've told us and just get into uh, the nitty-gritty of some of the things that right. uh, you mentioned there. Okay, we'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Hi, my name's Frank McKenna. I'm the Group Chair and Chief Executive of Downtown in Business. And I'm here to tell you about a fabulous Business of Sport conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September at the Old Trafford Cricket Stadium, the Emirates Stadium. We've got an array of fantastic speakers for your enjoyment, including uh, former footballer turned Sky Pundit Gary Neville. Now, of course, many business interests as well. We have uh, Jamie Jones Buchanan, uh, former rugby league legend and now he's taking his coaching and playing skills into the boardroom and Montel Douglas uh, athlete turned bobslayer turned gladiator many other great speakers as well along on that day for a conference that's uh, sponsored by Sedulo by BDP and of course by our good friends from VSI Executive Education so that's Downtown in Business's Business of Sport conference Thursday the 7th of September Old Traffic Cricket Stadium, go to our website, downtownandbusiness.com, go to the events section, book your tickets now. Welcome back to the Downtown Den with me, Frank McKenna, Chief Exec and Group Chair of Downtown in Business. And I'm sat with Martin Williams, who is the Chief Executive of Gaucho and M Restaurants. And Martin's just given us a, a whistle-stop tour of what has been a fascinating career so far. Uh, and I just want to take you back to a couple of the stories that you've mentioned there, Martin. One was the um, fine dining restaurant, Christopher's, that you were involved in. And you spoke about a manager there who was, um, let, let's say, didn't necessarily fit the culture that you would want to uh, attain in your businesses. Um, but you were the general manager in that place. And I just wonder what you were able to do as a leader within that business, reacting to his blow-ups because if there's a bullying culture from the top but then you've got a general manager who's quite supportive which I'm guessing you were you know how did that sort of work it's, he's he's a good example and another CEO I had was wasn't bullying in any way or aggressive anyway but he was incredibly controlling and demanding and in both cases I basically saw it as my position to protect the team from that influence and um, and to create a little micro environment where they could thrive and they could be their best selves. Um, so on one side, you're you're taking the pressure from above, and I think a lot of leaders need to learn to do that and not 
uh, allow it to trickle down into the team. Another example, you know, protecting protecting a team and keeping their in, them in their micro bubble. So you can set a vision and you can create an, an, a very challenging but inspiring environment at a local level or with your team below you. Uh, what you don't need to share with them are the world woes or the company woes. So as an entrepreneur, I learned that very quickly when I shared with my number two at the time, uh, my concerns about cash flow. So Brexit had just happened. I was fairly confident this was going to be a negative thing on sales and didn't have particularly high levels of working capital. And I was like, you know, if sales continue like this uh, with our one restaurant, we're going to run out of money. I shared that with him and I shared it with my wife and I was worried at the time. And um, what I didn't share with them was the solutions or the potential solutions. And so therefore you're just planting a seed of worry and actually it's an unfair thing to do as a leader. I think you know, once you get to a certain pay grade or responsibility level, it's your responsibility. And unfortunately, this is one of the hardest things of leadership. It's a very lonely journey. Um, and that's why I do a lot of, um, sort of dinners with other cross-sector CEOs. And the story is the same, whether you're an entrepreneur or a CEO, as a leader, you have to take it on your shoulders. And that's why you're paid what you're paid and you've come to that level of responsibility or you choose not to have that level of responsibility. But you've got to protect the team so that their, their, their job isn't to worry about your cash flow. Their job isn't to worry about a legal letter that you've had or whatever it happens to be, or or to worry that, you know, we don't have it now, but like shareholders or directors are putting a lot of pressure on you. And um, their job is to wait tables or, and to give amazing guest experiences in my in my world, um, to have pride in what they do and challenge each other to give an amazing dining experience. So I think there's a level of protection that you have to have to give to that team and you know really clear mental separation of this is the business this is what's happening above versus when you walk in a restaurant and everyone looks on your face and they're wanting to be recognized for the hard work they've done and the and the efforts that they've made or what they're planning to do that day <coughs> your mood can your mood can heavily affect like kill their day off if you're letting that pressure from above infiltrate your pre- what you're presenting to the broader team. Uh, and just in terms of the lesson you learned from working for people who perhaps don't share um, your approach to management, and obviously I would concur with you and say you've got a much more positive outlook as far as that's concerned. You then start to develop when you moving into more senior roles and now owning your own business, a culture. Um, And I was just wondering how you ensure that that culture filters into the various teams that you operate. Because as you say, you've got several restaurants. I'm guessing that you want the culture to be the same in each and every one of them. How difficult and challenging can that be, Martin? Yeah, it is. I mean, the bigger you get, the harder it is. So we have 23 restaurants, close to 2,000 staff. Uh, during lockdown, it was easy because I was I was doing some like video calls, sort of fireside chat um, uh, conversations with the whole team, and I was putting it out on our communications network and on YouTube, so that all of our employees could see and hear the message from the horse's mouth. 
So it was very easy to make sure that they had job security and we were reassuring them of that, what the master plan for the business was, what mental health support they could have, what training they could do, how they could keep themselves stimulated. And we went too far with it, to be honest. We had uh, doing physical exercise together, yoga together. <laughs> uh, so we pushed, we pushed the boundaries of uh, communication and community. But, um, but it was very easy for them to understand, okay, this is the leader. This is what he's doing. He's got a plan and he's, and he's reassuring us of our futures. Um, that wasn't an issue. But then once you're into normal trading, there's myself as the CEO, there's an operations director, there's area managers. You're trying to, you've got an HRD, you're, you're trying to filter through your heads of department, et cetera, and still retain that message. And it is difficult. So most recently, my CEO, HRD, have just done roadshow of all the restaurants, spoken to every member of staff. So with a vision of this is what we're doing to be a better employer. Um, this is what we're doing on engagement, diversity, inclusion. This is our social um, purpose. These are our ambitions with uh, reaching net zero, et cetera, et cetera. This is how we want to give all of you career development plans, grow with the business, and this future of business. I think that was my – I did the same roadshow uh, a year earlier, and then Joe and Ross did it this time around. So I think – you know, that you don't need to do these huge town hall speeches, but you do need to, and it's actually better to communicate with the restaurants, restaurant by restaurant. And I, my approach is like absolutely talking to everybody as an equal, not, you know, you'd be surprised how many people are actually interested in the bigger picture of the business. Um, so I think it would be, it's a mistake in leadership in our environment to just assume you're a casual worker and you're going to, you're only really here for a job. Like actually, um, I think everyone who works for us at Gaucho NM wants to be part of a bigger picture and, and be part of a community and actually make some change. So, you know, I also, whether you're here for six months or whether you're here for six years or, or, or beyond, um, I really want you to look back on this period of your life with pride and go, that was, that was a time when I was at my best. I was my best self. Um, and I was working in a highly motivated environment where my peers wanted to be amazing and do something great. And that can be the restaurant experience, and that needs to be the restaurant experience, the dining experience, the quality of the food, the quality of what we're producing from the bars um, and the level of hospitality we get. But actually also, uh, we've given much more, the company's ambition is much bigger than that. So we were the first restaurant to produce carbon neutral steaks. That's that source. And then we do that through an offsetting process, working with a charity partner called Not For Sale. Uh, they fight modern day slavery and sex trafficking. So we've started um, a number of reforestation programs with them in South America, our beef comes from South America primarily, uh, where we're planting seeds and saplings and trees with communities who otherwise would be in danger of modern day slavery. And they've become really entrepreneurial. So it's one example of, and, and they're self-sustaining now. Um, that's one example where our people have a real reason to be proud of working in that company and the, and the social purpose uh, along with the purpose of giving guests amazing dining experience. Uh, 
So that meant that means a lot to them, and it's something again. I hope that yeah, everyone working with us can look back on proudly, along with a number of like, plenty of other initiatives, more local particularly. Um, so. I forget where I'm going with it. <laughs> to be no, honest with you. no I, think, I think it's, I mean, you, you're basically explaining how you've developed that culture within your business, maintained it, and then obviously cascaded through the team. Uh, and one of the things uh, I've noticed a couple of times when I've been in Gaucho and you've rocked up is that you immediately go and speak to every single member of the team. It happened last night, sure. coincidentally. You know, I'm sat there having a meal. You walk in yep. and, you know, your first instinct yep. is to, right, take me around and let me talk to all of the team. Yeah. Has that just come natural to you? Is that something that you I think, think of, is one, really important? It, it, it is because, you know, your visitation isn't as much as you would like it to be. And and um, I think it's very important that you're not perceived as sort of detached from the business and actually you're, when you're talking to all, all the team members – uh, they realize that you're approachable and accessible and actually, you know, the messages and communication that you've been sending is genuine and, you know, is authentic and you're just an authentic leader. Um, one of the biggest challenges we have, and it might apply to other businesses, is there's always the danger of having a front of house, back of house divide. Bad restaurants tend to have that. The kitchen keep themselves to themselves and it, and almost resent front of house. Their job's much easier, um, but they get all the praise. Like You can easily have a rotten culture in a restaurant with this front of house, back of house divide. So I, you know, for many years, have purposefully made sure that my visitation front of house and back of house is equal and actually we're one family and promoting that that ethic. And And to be honest with you, we've achieved that. I think the restaurant's... Don't have that issue, um, but you're always conscious of it, and it's very easy. You know, if I walked into a restaurant and you said hello to the front of house team, then you're you're perpetuating an issue, a cultural issue. Um, but I think, yes, absolutely, it's it's just good leadership to be saying hello and thanking the team for the hard work they've put in when you visit the restaurants. Sounds easy, but a lot of people <laughs> don't do it. Um, let me just take. Something else that sort of occurred to me whilst you was talking to us in the first part of this podcast, it was that experience with the polo at uh, Gaucho. And okay, you've lost £138,000, but what a fantastic marketing opportunity that was for that brand. But then it sort of started to come together, this theatrical love that you have. And as I say, you've done drama, you've been an actor. And, you know, you really do go the extra mile in your venues to bring experience to the customer. Um, and I just wonder, Martin, as part of your motivation, because you talk there quite rightly about the need to motivate staff to show leadership, but as business leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, you need to have something that excites you as well. And I'm just wondering whether that's the side of the business that you really get switched on with, you know, coming up with those ideas, coming up with those experiences for customers and for people? Yeah, I think it, it's definitely a creative output. When I look at what I applied from my acting background, theatrical background, love theatre, to, to restaurants, it's fairly evident. Um, you know, you hold – I remember 
a skill that I learned at drama school where basically you were playing a character. If you were playing King Lear, you would have this incredible, you'd imagine this incredibly large bubble around you and it would grow and grow and fill the space. And all of a sudden your shoulders are back, your head's up, your chest's out and you are the king. I tried to enter restaurants a bit like that on occasions, particularly when I was on the floor. It was like, I'm owning this space. If you were an insecure character, your bubble would be tiny. You'd be in this like sort of hunched, slightly small, you know, imagine a space hopper rather than a, a gigantic bubble of holding an arena. And you're like, you become quite, an, that would be, that imagination would be how you would manifest a sort of insecure character. Um, so, yeah, the bubble is something I teach teach our managers. Uh, there were occasions when we did um, ballet in the restaurants and trying to get all the wait staff to move like swans in synchronicity. <laughs> I'm sort of doing a Swan Lake type impression. Um, I think there was one point where Liverpool Football Club were doing were learning ballet. I can't remember which manager it was, but there was for who knows if it was for similar reasons. But let's try and think cross sector, and then. Um, the design of the restaurants always has a sort of reveal and a theatricality about it, or that's what I like about a restaurant. Um, so in M, we have hidden doors that open up into a private member's lounge, or you walk through a corridor and all of a sudden there's this like great reveal of a beautiful restaurant. I remember one of the restaurants we had that I went to is called Spago. It's Wolfgang Puck's restaurant in LA. And it inspired a lot of the, the design and the decor of our restaurants. And basically you would have three tiers to this restaurant the actors were on the ground floor because they were the lowest tier in the in the la world then you had directors and then you had a tier above with the booths and that was full of producers and the kingpins of um, of the la acting world and i sort of like even though i was the bottom tier as a diner there i was like that's really interesting and there was another restaurant in um, miami called Matador, and that was like a bull ring in design. So when I created M in um, Victoria, I made it like a sort of oval amphitheater. And without the status levels, anyone could obviously die in anywhere. Um, you had these sort of little roll boxes around a central room that had a focal point, which actually in this case was a Himalayan salt cabinet full of our beef. So my theatricality has definitely inf- influenced the interior design of the business and um, and the way that I think. If you can, you shouldn't notice wait staff. They should sort of be invisibly one step ahead of you all the way around. If you're noticing plates being clunked on your table, this isn't clean, relaxing service. It's aggressive service. There's too many restaurants where you hear like bottles being thrown in a bin and you're like that offends my ears so much. It's like, ow. Uh, you don't go to a restaurant to go, ow. Like, so um, so there's, there is a beauty of movement and there's a beauty of design, which came from that, came from uh, the acting world. Plus, I think like, there's a lot I learned, which was just how you, how you hold yourself, how you articulate yourself. Communication is everything in leadership. And if you're able to communicate and understand the beauty of words and the power of how inflection and tone, and it makes you a better communicator and leader. Uh, and then the other thing that y- you mentioned was the, obviously the pandemic. Uh, we touched upon some of the challenges around recruitment in the sector at this moment in time, not just hospitality, but I think it is a bit more severe in hospitality. And 
I just wondered how you're meeting that challenge and what you think potentially could be some of the solution to that. Is there a case, for example, dare I mentioned the B word, I know you mentioned it earlier, but is there something that we could do that will just ease things for you guys in the sector at the moment if we had a better trading deal, for example, with the EU? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of, there are a number of things you can do as, a, as an employer to retain staff, and that's where we've had most of our focus, is making our workplace really engaged, highly motivated, very caring society for our people to work in. Um, and that has helped retention hugely. And we demonstrate that through our actions and also a number of policies and benefits that we give to our people. Um, you can be more imaginative in where you're getting your workforce from. So we've got a target of 5% of our workforce come from disadvantaged backgrounds. We work with a lot of charities on that, from HIV charities like Terence Higgins Trust, have a great project called Live Positive, to Only a Pavement Away, which is a charity partner we work with. It takes people who are formerly um, prisoners or homeless people, gives them an opportunity, upskills them so that they can work in hospitality. So we work closely with, with, with them. Um, and two or three other like apprenticeship-based charities where it's ex-servicemen, um, retired sportsmen, um, but and generally people who are perceived to who have perception that they can't re-enter work. So I think every business can look at that. To answer the political question, ultimately the workforce was halved by Brexit, and and then the pandemic. Um, push that to a new level because people return to their home, particularly in Europe. Um, so for our sector, the wage inflation that we've seen is a result of a chronic staff shortage um, that you very easily, there are exemptions to um, the labor laws of this country and, and immigration of this country and hospitality should be among them as should nursing and, and many other careers. Um, my view is that society is enhanced by immigration and uh, it, you know, I love London because it's a melting pot of cultures and the world and you can be anybody you want to be, whether that's from any country or any sexuality, whatever you want. And, uh, and it's an amazing place to live as a result. And I think there's a good amount of that in Liverpool as well and, and actually many of, the, many of the cities where we have restaurants. Um, and that's what I love about, you know, the UK generally. But we're in a danger of, I, I believe we're in a danger of becoming far too isolationist by not embracing uh, immigration and world culture. Why do you think there are more Brits attracted to your sector then? Is there a particular reason for that, do you think, Martin? I mean, it's interesting. If you, if you look at it from a chef perspective, so it's a great question because actually if you if you look at uh, what people watch on TV, some of the best shows on TV yeah. and most popular shows on TV are cookery shows. So there's clearly a love of food and a love of cooking and a love of kitchens. Um, and I think you know from a sh from the chef's side of things, you've now got some great ro role models out there. Mike Reed's our exec chef. He's currently on a Channel 4 program called Five Star Kitchen um, with Michelle Rue Jr., He's an incredibly inspiring figure. He's you know, British, black, 
um, great businessman, has worked at the highest level in kitchens. He was my partner with them. He's our creative director of, um, of Gaucho as well, culinary, culinary director of Gaucho. And now he's on TV. So if you want to work hard, work in kitchens, also end up on TV on a global Netflix show, you can achieve it. So I think there's some like, you know, and Gordon Ramsay, you can argue back and forth on, you know, originally had a very bad culture of sort of aggressive leadership. And that I think will have put people off kitchens. Um, but he was part of an age. Same applies to, to you know, other chefs who were famous at the time, like sort of Raymond Blocks of this world. Um, but um, but I think that culture's gone. And you know, Jamie Oliver, I don't think he's a great businessman, but I think he's he's his heart's in the right place and he's a good chef and good leader. Um, but he he again has done a lot to make cooking an attractive career. So I think we are seeing more chefs come through, more British chefs come through and fall in love. As an industry, we've had to look at it and go, you know, an 80-hour week isn't healthy for anyone. And I think, you know, particularly with them and Gaucho, we're very pro work-life balance and supporting mental health and making sure our environments are creative and kind, not aggressive, you know, factories, which was the culture in restaurants 20 years ago. Um, and you know, that, that angry head chef just doesn't have a place in our company. And I think in less and less companies, and that was something which was just the norm 25 years ago. From a business perspective, I think, you know, hopefully people are starting to understand one of my biggest thrills is, is actually leading a company, which is a great business. And that's from sales growth to profitability, um, and so I think business leaders now are starting to see hospitality, whether that's hotel management um, or, or being a restaurateur, as, as a viable career. But it just takes time for that culture to change. And those roles historically were taken up by European workforce. It's, ve it's very, very normal for people to go into, and they're proud to go into hospitality in particularly Italy, France. It's just part of the culture. Australians, Americans, Canadians made up a lot of our workforce and were great managers, um, but they've become less and less so. So you know, if you want to look at Brexit as a positive, and you have to because it's here, um, you, um, I think you, it's a real opportunity for hospitality as a sector to go, how do we inspire people to come and join us? And um, you know, there's a lot of movements that are helping that process. But I think also if you're like, yeah, hospitality isn't just about food and beverage. You can, be, you can be part of that journey or part of a company. It's incredibly creative. There's huge marketing elements. There's great financial elements. There's sales initiatives. So, you, you know, there's probably about 50 careers in hospitality. I, it's, it's incredible to me um, how many people join us while they're at uni and then go, actually, I love that. And I can have an output for my chosen career. So we have, we have digital designers, we have uh, creative directors, we've got sales, sales teams, business development directors, um, everything in finance in-house. So there's like huge, huge HR uh, departments, people departments. So I think you can be pretty much anything you want to be, and you'll be able to get a job in hospitality. So it's it's opening up people's eyes to understanding 
Um, it's not about angry chefs and uh, subservient service. It's actually you know, an environment where you can be anything and thrive and have a, have a really enjoyable career. Some big opportunities there. So tell me, um, terms of your own personal experiences, a um, couple of lessons that you've learned. So let's take, you know, the things that you will tell your 24-year-old self when you started out in this industry. If you knew then what you know now, what are the sort of things that you'd avoid? What are the sort of things that you'd definitely do again? I think the the level the level of tone that you have with your people and the time that you spend listening to them um, will make you an appreciated and very trusted leader with a very loyal workforce. So my brother's my brother headed up um, Men's Health, Esquire, Cosmopolitan magazines. He worked for Hearst and he was the, I don't remember whether he was MD or, um, yeah, he was MD of Hearst. And, um, and when he left, the amount of people, he's now with a different publication, um, but when he left, the amount of people who I went to his leaving party said the best thing about him was he was always, he would come into the business and ask, how's your family? And he actually cared. Um, and he knew, knew your family's names. I'm, not as, I'm nowhere near as good as my brother. Um, but actually taking the time to, to ask a question about every individual's personal circumstance and, um, and how they are and actually caring what the answer is and listening to what the answer is um, will buy you so much love, loyalty, leadership, leadership. Um, more than you would ever imagine. That investment in time will bring a bring a team along with you. Um, I think it's also incredibly important to set out a vision and make sure that everybody realizes shares in that vision and realizes their role in it. So if you're just you know, if you're creating a mundane working environment that doesn't have a challenge where you're not inspired to be the best in your peer group, that you're not beating your rivals, people will just come to work and leave, and they won't they won't they won't be challenged or inspired. So you've got to create that vision of this is where we are, this is where we're going to, and what that means to the to the business. And also give people a reason to do it. That might be financial, it might be career progression, but actually everybody's buying into being their best and creating an inspiring environment for people to work. So, um, so I think those two things of like, one, being an empathetic leader, um, to finding an environment where you can put your own passions and beliefs. And for me, you know, the diverse workforce is, in, is really important. The carbon neutrality of our business and reaching that quickly, uh, but authentically not just buying carbon credits is, is really important to me. Uh, the having brands which have a quality of dining experience and environment, which I could be very proud of, is incredibly important to me. Um, so that fulfills my passions and ambitions, and you need to do the same with every one of your team members. It's actually tap into their psyche of what's going to inspire them and give them the reasons to be them be- their, their best selves whilst creating an environment where yeah, you're proud that this is a company which is a caring company where we demonstrate our values 
by actions, not just words, and find opportunities to to do that, like proactively seek opportunities to do that and be a, be a better a better community and society as a result. Great advice. Final question. Uh, what next for Mars and what next for Calcio and M restaurants? It's an exciting an exciting time at the moment. We've been, uh, over the last two years, I think we've opened four or five restaurants. We're about to open another restaurant in Cardiff, which will be open a new, um, a new territory for us, if you want to call it that. Uh, we've never opened a restaurant in Wales before, so that's very exciting. And then as a, we go, in the very short term, we go into the most exciting period of the year, which is quarter four. Um, basically, build all your business and contacts and brand loyalty over your first three periods of the year with the view that the golden quarter is where you reap the rewards of that. Um, and so we're hoping for, we, if you think about restaurants, we actually haven't been able to enjoy a Christmas period for about four years. Mm. Last year there was industrial action, which killed the last two weeks. And the two years before that, you had COVID and pandemic. So actually, people haven't been able to celebrate Christmas, which is really important, both socially, uh, personally, and professionally. Uh, haven't had the opportunity to have a great Christmas party for three or four years. So we'll have a fantastic Christmas. And then we're looking at other, other opportunities uh, for growth. At the moment, we're really focused on Britain. I think uh, Gaucho is such a strong brand that it can be in dozens of places where we aren't today, uh, how we develop M and consolidate M and then add uh, add that into our portfolio broader than just London is really exciting. Um, and then we'll look at we'll look at other opportunities as well. But we're, we're probably halfway through a journey of being as diverse and inclusive as we want to be as being we've I created the sustainable stake movement. And I haven't done enough with it yet. I would really want to get the whole sector um, to buy into what we're doing and, and uh, approach carbon neutrality in a similar similar way. Um, the work that we're doing on bringing a diverse workforce into, into the business through really championing and authentically um, being part of a social movement to get a disadvantaged workforce into, into rare uh, gaucho and air. Uh, we haven't achieved that yet and there's you feel as though we've achieved a phenomenal amount of, from 2018 and personally I've achieved a lot but we haven't completed the journey yet so that's the most exciting bit is like it's probably another two or three years of hard work and then um, then I'll start taking Ned positions or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing the next stage of the journey, Martin. Thanks very much for joining us in the downtown Zen. That's Martin Williams, who's the chief executive of Gaucho and M Restaurants. If you've not experienced either of those brands yet, I can't believe it, but if you haven't, uh, then there's a treat for those who are coming along to our event at M Restaurants in London with the Shadow Minister for Health, Wes Streeting, and Gary Neville, ex-football pundit, of course, but now entrepreneur, somebody who himself has got uh, hospitality venues, and that's on the 13th of September in Threadneedle Street, London, M Restaurants. It's always, always 
uh, a great night down there. So if you are coming along to that, then uh, I'm sure you'll have an enjoyable evening. Um, That's it for this episode of the Downtown Den. We'll be back next week with another leader, giving you some tips and tricks as to how you can succeed. And the good thing, as Martin said, uh, in the conversation that we've had today, uh, some of the lessons that you can learn from either your mistakes or other people's mistakes as well. Um, Enjoy the rest of your week. Catch up again soon.